Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this webinar, where we'll be discussing a report released today by the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. The report looks at key features of US state and local language access laws and policies. Um, I'll, before we get going, I'll just uh, provide a few uh, remarks on logistics for the call. Uh, for those of you who have joined us before, you probably be familiar with this, but you can contact us at the number that you see on the screen there, 202-266-1929, or at events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, please keep in mind that there's no voice Q&A during the webinar. We'd appreciate if you'd use the Q&A function during the webinar. We always love to get your questions uh, early. Uh, so we've left a lot of time for Q&A at the end, but receiving the questions uh, throughout the webinar is very helpful for just trying to, uh, to tee up and figure out how to, um, how to uh, the order in which to address them. Um, also, you can write to us at events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet us, you can see there uh, the, uh, the ways to do that. And uh, we frequently get questions about whether the audio will be available. Yes, uh, everything related to the webinar will be available online. Uh, it may take a day to get the audio up, but you'll be able to find it easily online. Um, so just in terms of the context for the report within our Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, uh, many of you know that our primary areas of work are really focused in the education and training pipeline, early childhood, K-12, adult debt and workforce development. Over the years, we've made some significant investments in our research and policy analysis and also uh, uh, having some online resources related to language access. This report kind of brings us back uh, to that area in a more significant way. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we go through the webinar. Um, we also have a, a pretty deep focus on the governance of integration policy, both at the federal level and also state and local efforts to do that. So um, turning to today's report, um, we are really excited to be releasing uh, this framework for language access that looks at key features of US state and local language access laws and policies. Uh, we um, uh, have, there, there's a lot of, I would say great resources even packed into the, um, the actual report. And uh, Jake Hofstetter and I, who will be speaking on today's webinar, uh, will say a little bit more um, about that as we go through. I probably should have said this at the very beginning. I'm Margie McHugh. Uh, I will, um, I'll be uh, mostly moderating, uh, but also uh, speaking a bit to tee up the report today. I'm the director of MPI's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, and I'm joined by my terrific colleague, Jacob Hofstetter, who's an associate policy analyst with us. And um, uh, he and I and Anna O'Toole, a, a former wonderful colleague at, uh, at MPI, uh, who did a lot of the uh, sort of initial, some of the initial um, looking and advocating that we do this report um, uh, are also co-authors of it. So, uh, so turning to, uh, to say a little bit more about how we're gonna run this session, uh, we, we thought we would do just a very quick review of the right to language access. We figure most of you who are joining the webinar already have a good bit of background in that. Uh, we'll say a little bit about uh, a, over, a little overview of state and local laws and policies, but then it's going to be pretty meat and potatoes with talking about what we, uh, the features that we found in the laws um, and, um, and just which 
what kind of met our definition for laws and policies. Uh, so, uh, and then as I said, we've left a fair amount of time for Q&A, although we only scheduled this webinar for 45 minutes. So uh, we're gonna try and hit that end time, but as um, we're, we always make a point of getting back to people whose questions we don't get to, but um, hopefully we'll be able to get to all the questions folks might have today. So, um, so turning to, uh, to just the um, uh, kind of the basis, I guess I would say for how many agencies and uh, how policy works in the country related to language access. Uh, many of you know that, uh, that all entities receiving federal funding have to ensure that meaning access, meaningful access to services for limited English proficient individuals is available to them. Uh, keep going, Jake, with this side. So, so <laughs> there's so much that could be said about the legal underpinnings of this, uh, but basically the right flows from Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, several Supreme Court decisions, and also the executive order that was promulgated uh, during uh, President uh, Clinton's time in office, Executive Order 13166. And uh, many of you probably are aware, but if you're not, you can look to LEP.gov, which is a really terrific website that's maintained by uh, the De US Department of Justice that has a lot of resources related to implementation of the executive order uh, and to responsibilities of those, uh, those receiving federal funds. So what happens, well, we, this, our take on state and local laws um, that have been adopted is that very often states and localities have found that in order to make sure that the agencies that, uh, the, the agencies that work under state and local government umbrellas but receive federal funds, that there's, there's just work to be done to make sure that, uh, that those agencies are able to comply with federal regulations uh, related to language access. But then there's also an array of activities that state and lo local governments themselves engage in that they often want to make sure are also providing appropriate language access for limited English proficient representatives. And so that's really what we're focused on here is how have states and localities done this through their own language access laws or ordinances, executive orders or policies. So uh, just turning now to, to how the, I guess still the framework of, uh, of how we're looking at this. We did find, and this is how we've sort of arranged the report, that there are lots of common features um, to the state and local laws and policies that we that we looked at, we wanted to provide an array, make that more visible um, in this report. Uh, both that there are these common features and also innovative elements, and that uh, hopefully by doing that, by making all that a lot uh, a lot more visible for folks who are concerned about these issues at the state and local levels, that they'd be able to compare um, different language access measures. And uh, think about that as they plan and develop um, new language access policies or expand their existing ones. Uh, here are some of the common features. You can see them up on the screen. Um, these are, these are um, obviously, not surprisingly, very often uh, addressing duties of agencies or their staff to deliver services. Uh, so we group those under the category of agency responsibilities. 
and then we were very interested also in broader provisions that were creating administrative capacity across agencies and governments. So those within the report are grouped under policy administration. Uh, you, we, <laughs> I don't want to in any way um, minimize the importance of the agency responsibilities because that's really how um, uh, how actually services are going to reach folks uh, uh, at the front line of services. But we were really struck uh, with the importance of administrative infrastructure and governance in terms of the, the possibilities those created for better implementation of the laws, fidelity in implementation, and also the ability of the, the laws to um, move forward in time, I guess would be the way to say it. So uh, moving on, uh, so we know we're gonna get a lot of questions about this, about which, uh, how did we decide what should be included uh, in the report? So you can see here that basically to be included, and we had a lot of conversations about this internally, um, but the laws and policy ha policies had to be legi legally binding and apply to most, if not all agencies providing services to the public um, in a state or local government. So of course, we are, are very impressed and uh, for all of the efforts that happen within agency silos to make sure that they're getting language access right. Uh, but what the, the sort of um, uh, the determining factor for us was whether they applied in, a, in more of a cross-agency sense, and therefore we're really trying to have more of a whole of government approach um, at the state, county, or local level. And so in the, in the report, we look at 45 laws, ordinances, executive orders, and policies from 40 states and localities. And there's, don't worry, there is a great appendix uh, in the report that has a, that has links, I think, to pretty much all of the policies that we looked at. And so you can basically do your own research if you like, looking, uh, looking individually at the, at the various measures that might be of most interest um, to you. And finally, uh, we, we, it was way beyond the scope of what we could do to try and uh, provide an analysis that looks deeply at the efficacy or implementation of the policies. So, so that's why we're calling this a framework that we're trying to, to first of all, uplift all of the laws and ordinances that are out there that apply in a cross-agency sense and then, uh, and then provide the, the, the framework of agency and administrative responsibilities so that it's easy for folks who are easier for folks at the state and local levels um, to, to understand the various features and to have a way to get more information about them, but, but really trying to figure out a massive study that would look at actual efficacy um, in implementation was beyond what we were able to do with the report. So with that, uh, I would, um, Jake, could you, do you wanna just bring up the, um, the full set? I think that we'll uh, turn it over to you um, now for Great. this next portion. Yeah, thank you, Margie. So hi, everyone. Uh, as we mentioned at the top, my name is Jake Hofstetter and I'm an Associate Policy Analyst. 
with the Integration Center at MPI. Um, so today I'm going to talk through the two broad categories of features that we observed in these language access laws and policies across US states and localities. So I should note as Margie has as well, that there's a lot more detail in the report about all of these specific features, um, but I am gonna talk through each one briefly for both of the overarching categories that we looked at, including responsibilities assigned to agencies and elements of policy administration. So it's important to note for both the features affecting agency responsibilities and the features affecting policy administrations that not every law or policy contained every feature, but every law or policy contained at least one, or in some cases, multiple of these features. And in the report, most notably in appendices A and B, we have more detail on how many of the laws and policies contain each feature and what features are contained in each law and policy. So for now, though, I'm going to talk more broadly through the shared features we observed. So looking at agency responsibilities, uh, agency responsibilities refer to the specific obligations and tasks assigned to departments and agencies within a state, county, or city by language access laws and policies. And just to look at some of these specifically, these include agencies' responsibility to translate vital documents and websites. So the different laws and policies we looked at included regulations on what documents should be translated, which generally uh, included all vital documents provided to individuals. So uh, the exact def definition of vital documents, however, was provided in most of these laws through policies. Uh, other regulations related to the translation of documents included what languages uh, that documents should be translated into, and also how agencies should translate documents, whether through the use of third-party contracts, in-house staff, or even volunteers in some cases. Another uh, agency responsibility assigned in almost all of the laws and policies we looked at was the use of interpreting and bilingual staff to provide oral language services to limited English proficient clients. So this include delivery of services via interpreters or by bilingual staff, and also regulations on the use of remote or in-person uh, interpretation as well. Other features discussed in these laws and policies include bilingual staff directories and the use of iSpeak cards as well. Apologies for the noise outdoor. Um, in addition, uh, another common feature that we saw across these laws and policies included um, measures to ensure the accuracy and quality control, quality control measures for language services. Um, so this included measures such as the certification and testing processes for interpreters, translators, volunteers, and bilingual staff, as well as quality control for translation and regulations on how to address the use of family or friends in, as uh, interpreters uh, in government services and the use of Google Translate as well. Another common feature that we saw addressing responsibilities assigned to agency, including the requirement to train agency staff on how to provide services to limited English proficient, so there's limited English proficient individuals. So there's a number of different regulations on how to do this and the laws and policies that we observed. So those included um, both training agency staff on the right to language access, as well as training agency staff on specific procedures and ways to access interpre interpreting and translation to serve, to serve limited English proficient individuals. In addition, uh, another common feature assigned uh, as part of agency responsibilities in the um, in the different laws and policies we looked at was a requirement for agencies to provide public notification of both the right to language access and the availability of interpretation and translation. So um, this 
uh, public notification was mandated in different ways throughout the laws and policies we looked at. The most common one was through the use of signage in public areas where uh, individuals were receiving services. In addition, some laws and policies directly required agency staff to inform individuals of their right to an interpreter or translator. And other um, laws and policies, uh, a more select number actually required direct community outreach to limited English proficient individuals, communities, and organizations representing them to inform individuals of the right to language access and services available. So the final two features I want to discuss as well that we saw as a common part of agency responsibilities assigned in these laws and policies um, include the appointment and designation of language access coordinators, individuals or teams to, uh, directly, um, to directly coordinate language access across an agency and provide a bit of intra-agency management and coordination to ensure that language access services are being delivered, being reported on, being reported. And similar to this, a planning function as well was that many of the laws and policies that we examined also required the development of agency language access plans, which, as the name suggests, lay out exactly the way that agencies plan to provide language services, to track uses of language, and to ensure that limited English proficient individuals are receiving meaningful access to the services being offered. So taking stock of all these different features, all these different responsibilities assigned to agencies affected by the state and local laws and policies we look at, they all present approaches for public serving agencies to ensure consistent quality written and oral language services that are supported via intra-agency planning and coordination. Now, I just wanna note as well that these are probably for those who work with language access or who are directly involved in the field, these are probably fairly familiar practices for many um, and looking at most agencies, many agencies across the country may already be doing these types of work, though this may not necessarily be required by state or local law, nor always fully implemented in every service. Um, so now I'm going to move on to talk more about, uh, I'm going to move on from the responsibilities and tasks assigned to agencies to the broader administra administrative features that many of the laws and policies we analyze created to manage and monitor language access across their state or local governments. So as Margie mentioned, we refer to these as features related to policy administration, which refers to the overarching structures and governance practices that coordinate and monitor language access across agencies across an entire state or local government. So I'm going to provide a very brief overview of these here on this slide, and then I'm going to get into some more detail, including specific examples from the laws and policies that we analyze over the next few slides. As Margie mentioned, we're going to spend a little bit more time here because a lot of these policy administration features that we observed in these laws and policies um, had really interesting areas of innovation. And also, broadly speaking, were not as uniform nor as common throughout the laws and policies we looked at. And actually, only a select number of the laws and policies uh, actually had all of these policy administration features, which you can identify through Appendix B of the report. And again, beyond just the innovation and the uh, more and these being less common in many of these laws and policies, as Margie mentioned, these uh, features are also really important for implementation, fidelity, and durability of these language access laws and policies. So broadly speaking, like I said, I'm just going to give an overview here and talk briefly through some of the features before spending some more time on them in the next couple slides. So policy administration structures create accountability for agencies. They provide capacity building measures and establish infrastructure for centralized planning and coordination on language access across a state or local government. So some of the different features we notice, and again, I'm gonna move through these briefly, uh, include 
oversight offices or offices or individuals designated to provide oversight to agencies uh, enacting the language access measures required in these laws and policies. They include advisory councils and technical assistant bodies that uh, duties assigned to staff or offices to provide guidance, information, and advice to agencies implementing these measures. They also include accountability mechanisms and complaint procedures to ensure that agencies and their staff are adhering to language access provisions and regulations. They include data systems and population tracking, tracking both use of agency services by limited English proficient individuals, as well as the specific languages being encountered throughout government services as well. Another common feature of policy administration we observe across these laws and policies is the involvement of community members and groups representing limited English proficient communities in the planning, implementation, and evaluation of both broadly the language access policies being implemented across a jurisdiction and the specific services being, being delivered within each agency. And finally, this was a less common feature, but it did occur in some of the different language access uh, laws and policies that we looked at was provisions that required the budgetary planning or allocation of resources within departmental language access plans for the provision of language services such as interpreting and translation. So now we're gonna move on and look at these in some more detail. So starting with oversight entities and technical assistance. So many of the state and local language access laws and policies we observed assign cross-agency oversight responsibility to an office, team, or individual. So this responsibility included monitoring implementation, ensuring compliance, providing assistance to agencies implementing language access measures, and also just broadly coordinating efforts across agencies, across state or local government to advancing language access. So most often in, this, in the uh, laws and policies we examined, this responsibility of oversight was assigned to an Office of New Americans, an Office of, New, of Immigrant Affairs, or in other cases, an office responsible for intra-governmental administration. So a good example of one of these oversight offices that we observed in our research and analysis of these laws and policies was San Francisco's Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs. So this office in San Francisco, under the city's uh, language access ordinance, is responsible for providing a centralized infrastructure for the city's language services and monitoring and facilitating departmental compliance with the language access ordinance and all of the requirements that it lays out. So some of these duties include providing technical assistance to agencies, providing trainings, collecting compliance plans from agencies and then reporting on those, um, maintaining a directory of qualified language service providers, tracking data, and also being the centralized infrastructure for taking complaints on language access as well. So using oversight bodies is really important to centralizing the administration of language access policy. It also gives important points of contact for agencies in dealing with language access. And on a most basic level, it ensures that someone, some team or some office is monitoring uh, the implementation of language access measures and ensuring the effectiveness of them as well. So connected to this uh, is the creation of technical assistance bodies. As many of the laws and policies we looked at created or more commonly designated a technical assistance body, or in some cases, an advisory council to guide and support agencies in putting language access procedures into place. So generally these technical assistance bodies were the same as the oversight offices that, we, um, that I just spoke of, but some jurisdictions such as Hawaii 
have established their own advisory councils that include both uh, external governmental organizations as well as the government itself to provide guidance and feedback separate and assistance separate from oversight offices themselves. So an example of this from our analysis is under Seattle's executive order on language access. The city's Office of Immigrant and Refugee Affairs is required to provide technical assistance to agencies. So this technical assistance as laid out in the executive order includes helping uh, agencies identify qualified bilingual staff, training agencies staff on language access, maintaining a directory of qualified interpretation and translation services, maintaining a collection of translated documents, and also assisting the development of language access uh, plans on the part of agencies. So these technical assistance uh, duties, whether they assign, are assigned to an advisory council or to an oversight office, are really important because not all agencies necessarily have expertise in language access nor experience even implementing language access measures, and others may simply need technical assistance or guidance to ensure fidelity to whatever state or, state or local law or policy on language access has been enacted. Um, in addition, these offices and bodies also serve as important point of contacts with assistance, help, and advice for agencies, staff, and even individual programs trying to ensure language access as well. So moving on to another shared policy administration feature that we, that we observed in a decent number, though admittedly a smaller number of state and local language access laws and policies is the involvement of community um, in the planning, implementation, and or evaluation or monitoring of language access policies. Now this can either take the place, uh, take the form of directly engaging with limited English proficient communities via community engagement strategies, but it can also include bringing in organizations or coalitions that represent language access, uh, that represent the cause of language access or limited English proficient communities in order to be a part of the governance structure of laws as well. So a really, uh, really interesting example of this is the role of Washington DC's Language Access Coalition under Washington DC's uh, Language Access Law. So under, uh, so the DC's Language Access Coalition is a collection of different organizations advocating for better language access uh, within the district. And under Washington DC's law, they're designated actually as a third party consultant for the implementation of the language access law. So basically the scope of their duties, the scope of their consulting role uh, extends to the collection of data, the development of language access plans on the part of agencies, and also suggesting what additional agencies within the district should be covered by the requirements of the language access law. Even in uh, DC's law, actually, the language access director for the city also is uh, mandated to keep the coalition informed of program activities, giving reasonable considerations so that the coalition can provide its input to language access as well. So all of these features really just represent the important role that soliciting feedback on language access service quality can serve in these laws and policies, as it allows government agencies and centralized oversight uh, offices to collect data on how uh, implementation is going. That's really valuable, really rich sources of data that extend beyond um, the type of data that agencies would normally collect in their interactions with the general public and LEP individuals specifically. Now, speaking of data, I just wanna move on to the final two uh, features related to policy administration that I'm gonna be discussing in more depth here, both data tracking and accountability mechanisms. So a number of the laws and policies we looked at have specific requirements for agencies and at time, 
uh, and at time, uh, sorry about that, and uh, require, requiring agencies to collect data to track the size of LEP communities and the use of agency services. So for example, some of the data that folks are required to collect includes the languages spoken by those using agency services, emergency emerging languages coming out in the community, as well as more specifically, um, specifically what services or what offices uh, and the frequency of interpretation and translation being used by um, LEP individuals. So in the laws and policies that we looked at, this can occur both at the agency level and also at the broader uh, policy administration level by whatever oversight body is seeing this. Uh, so generally speaking in the laws and policies that we looked at, the agencies collect the data directly incorporated into their language access plans, which is then also used by the um, city's, city, county, or state's oversight body to inform policy discussions and changes in the implementation of the law as well. So for example, New York City's Local Law 30 requires agencies to include detailed evaluations of the language access needs of the service population they're, they're helping to assess if services should be provided in languages additional to those that um, are, the city already mandates services to be provided in. So the evaluation um, of that on the part of New York City's uh, agencies should consider relevant survey data, language collected through intake processes, and data collected on language access services rendered or requested. So the final piece of policy administration, one of the ones where we thought we saw the most innovation and some of the most importance for ensuring the fidelity and successful implementation of these laws and policies um, was the establishment of accountability accountability measures, which was present in a number of different laws and policies that we looked at, with some having particularly developed and robust measures to ensure compliance and monitoring of agencies and programs tasked with providing services to LEP uh, communities. So as I mentioned, many of the state and local laws and policies we looked at enacted measures to ensure agencies and their staff are adhering to language access provisions through several different measures, which include the regular use of compliance plans, um, centralized reporting to legislatures or executives, and complaint procedures as well. So just looking at a couple of these, so compliance reports oftentimes overlap with language access plans. The difference that, we, that agencies must develop, the difference that we really saw here was that a number of different jurisdictions required those plans to be submitted and reviewed by an oversight body, um, looking at specific data points, looking at the progress on language access, and also looking at the plans to expand language access and services in coming years. Um, so this creates a regular reporting mechanisms from agencies to an oversight body. And in some of the different jurisdictions that we looked at, um, this reporting to a centralized oversight body also required then a report to, for example, a city council or a state legislature or some legislative or executive body even above on how uh, the implementation of the language access law or policy was going. Again, creating a regular reporting chain through which uh, agencies and the jurisdiction itself could be held accountable to the measures included in these language access uh, laws and policies. Chicago, for example, uh, has a requirement in its language access law that departmental language access coordinators are required to submit a compliance plan to the mayor's office of new Americans that outlines progress made in the year prior and plans for the year ahead each year. 
So just moving on to talk a little bit about complaint procedures and how these uh, factor into accountability mechanisms as well. So allowing LEP individuals who use public services the opportunity to file complaints um, when they have not received adequate language access is also an important part of accountability for both local and state programs and agencies as well. So effective complaint procedures enable LEP individuals to report uh, failures and also in many of the laws and policies that we looked at, these more formalized complaint procedures also required responses from agencies in a formalized process that at times also include mediation by out, outside parties as well. And in addition, uh, tying into what I was talking about in terms of compliance plans, part of the reporting required of agencies in some states and localities also included that um, agencies had to provide copies of the reports of the complaints to oversight bodies to better understand where, um, where LEP individuals were reporting not being served properly. So a good example of this that I wanted to highlight from our report is um, a complaint procedures in Oakland's ordinance on language access. So under Oakland's ordinance, complaints have to be made, complaint forms have to be made available in all of the major uh, languages spoken by limited English proficient populations in the cities. And beyond just responding to those complaints, agencies are also responsible for providing copies to the city manager, who then must make reports to the city council every six months. So broadly speaking, um, just looking at these accountability mechanisms, we think these are really important uh, and really innovative in a lot of ways for achieving fidelity in the implementation of language access regulations, and that they're really important for ensuring that agencies or programs that are not providing adequate language access are being held accountable uh, for non-compliance as well. But there's also a step beyond compliance and accountability, which is that measures such as complaint procedures, such as regular reporting that goes up through a chain through different oversight bodies, also serves as important data sources for jurisdictions to better understand how to improve and enhance the implementation of their language assistance policies and understanding better where, where challenges are occurring within implementation, whether that be a specific agency, a specific program, a specific office, or in some cases, a specific language that um, an agency or program may be struggling to provide adequate services to. So I just wanna highlight before I conclude as well, that this is really just a broad sense of the different features that we were able to explore in this report, and that um, you can really find a lot of more rich detail uh, in the report itself and its appendices, as Margie mentioned well, as Margie mentioned as well, also the opportunity to explore a lot of this information too. So just I wanna conclude with saying as well that taken together these features related to policy administration and agency responsibility, when implemented uh, in a complementary way, they assign clear responsibilities, tasks, and procedures to affected agencies through which agencies can provide coordination, training, and quality control measures to support the effective provision of interpretation and translation, while on a broader level, also providing oversight and centralization of planning, coordination, and accountability across governments. But all put together, uh, to say this in a, in a more brief way, they really create a framework through which language access can be provided on a state and local level and through which effective implementation of these measures can be advanced. So just in the interest of time and allowing everyone adequate space to ask questions, um, I'm gonna wrap up there and then I'll to the next slide, which has some more details on how to ask questions. And I think I'll pass it off to Margie now, who I believe will be monitoring, mo uh, moderating Q&A portion. 
Jake, yes, great job. And I will give you a chance to catch your breath. <laughs> um, so, um, so there's a lot packed into the report as, um, as you could hear from, uh, from Jake's quick tour of it. And, uh, and I think I'll just respond to a few of the questions that have come into the chat uh, and, um, and then pass a few of them along to Jake, but please feel free to, um, to add additional ones. And as I said, we'll try and move through them uh, as well as possible and get back, to you, uh, get back to you directly if we don't get to them all today. So, um, so one question was, what's the difference between an agency language access plan and a program specific plan? I guess in our minds, um, we, were, we, we were thinking, for example, of a Department of Health, which is an agency, um, either state or local, that might within it have a, uh, also a, a maternal health program, for example, or a smoking cessation program, or you know, many programs that do outreach. And, uh, and those programs might be on language access in a pretty a substantial way uh, and that and what they're doing um, would be different or look different in terms of their language access planning than perhaps what the agency level plan would be. So there's not a, um, it, you know, it was more of an informal way that we have of uh, just talking about the, the multiple layers at which you might see a language access plan. Uh, but but the, the main planning is required um, from the federal level, passing that on to its grantees at the state level. And then these state and local ordinances would be um, pretty specific about where does the responsibility fall uh, at the agency or program level. Um, then another question was if a locality isn't identified in our report, does that mean that it likely doesn't have a local language access law or policy? And that's one of the things we're nervous about with putting the report out, did we miss any? And, uh, and if, if we have missed any uh, and, uh, and we get information about them, we uh, will add them to the report, but we think we did a pretty thorough scan of what was out there and, uh, and that we've captured most of the, you know, we've captured, we've captured all the ones that, um, that it's reasonably possible to know about. And we know of some additional ones, but they just didn't meet the uh, they didn't meet the qualifications that we had set for inclusion in the report. Um, Jake, do you want to react to that before I answer one more question before tossing another one to you? Yeah, absolutely. I would just say that our um, our goal was to be as exhaustive as possible, but I think we also realized that that. Uh, just given capacity concerns might not be completely uh, achievable. However, I do think that um, looking across all of these laws and policies, I think we really have a good a good sample of them at the very least, though I suspect we have most, if not almost all of them to build this framework and that additional laws and policies would really just fit quite nicely into this uh, framework would be my expectation. Right, which is also, uh, uh, we haven't, we haven't uh, really directly um, said this, uh, but our intention internally is that the various tables that you see in the report, they're, they're sort of easily excised from the larger document. And, uh, and those are what we would update if we find additional laws or policies. Uh, we expect to include them over time in the, in the overall um, tables that we've got uh, within the report. So another question was, do, the language, do language access requirements apply also to federal agency themselves? 
I would say anybody who's joined us from the federal level is getting a chuckle right now at that question because it, um, uh, yes, they, they do apply to federal agencies themselves. And uh, there's been a fair amount of um, earlier and ongoing work that gets done at the Civil Rights Division within the um, US Department of Justice to stay on top of and help support federal agencies in making sure that they've got um, uh, really substantive language access policies and that they are implementing them. So of course, um, there you know there's uh, usually room for improvement, uh, but yes, the the policies uh, do apply to federal agencies themselves. So Jake, I thought I would toss you uh, a question that has to do really uh, with what sort of guidance the policies offer for agencies in determining the size or count of speakers of various languages in the jurisdiction. Um, does it tend to be census data or other sources? Yeah, I think that the most common way that we saw was um, an identification either via threshold, some people say uh, 5% versus 3%, um, and using ACS data to determine what's the most frequently, um, what are the most frequently spoken languages. Some, um, some, some state and local laws and policies say, uh, so for example, any, anyone who crosses the threshold of this many speakers should be included an automatic translation of all vital documents. Whereas others will say, for example, in New York, it's the top 10 languages, our documents are automatically translated into the top 10 most common languages. And that number differs between jurisdictions. So I would say those are the two primary approaches that, that we saw. And yeah, to confirm, that's almost always through the use of American community survey data. Great. Um, Jake, another, another question is, um, how, can place it, how can some of these laws be choosing only some languages when um, uh, don't the federal requirements uh, requ don't the federal requirements speak to LEP individuals generally, not just specific subgroups? Right. So I think that's um, in the laws and policies that we saw. They all require uh, meaningful access for anyone who speaks any language other than English. However, it's just a question of what docu what languages are documents going to be for example, automatically translated. So for example, if a jurisdiction has a significant Spanish speaking and Korean speaking population uh, that they determine, they might just automatically translate almost every single document they make or every vital document into that language. However, if someone were to show up who spoke, for example, um, French or Haitian Creole, then the agency would still have the responsibility about get, of getting that document uh, translated for that individual and providing uh, language services, be that through the use of bilingual staff or interpretation services. So I think it's really more about um, planning on how to have things ready when in anticipating the need for translated documents or the use of interpreters or bilingual staff. Got it. Um, okay, so uh, I'll just take this one. Uh, there's uh, someone who's written in saying that they know the study looks at states and localities that have language access policies, but did we um, find any trends or patterns in the areas that were um, not included in the report, meaning those that have uh, fewer little policies in language access? So, you no, know, you know, too big a country, too many um, uh, localities and the like. Uh, we, we really were just looking for those that did have policies. And of course, uh, 
given the number that we found, um, the vast majority of, of uh, uh, subnational uh, government entities uh, don't have cross-cutting language, cross-cutting uh, policies that affect all of their uh, or most of their state and local agencies. Uh, but I would say in terms of finding out information or how others have tried to address that, there, there are certainly a number of places, and I would say, you know, we could take a look to see in how many of the, uh, the places that are featured in this report, how many of them might have had reports that got published, um, usually by uh, advocates in their communities about the, the, about the problems associated with not having better language access. Certainly a number of those uh, reports have been written. Uh, as part of moving forward with this report, we're also working to update our, our language portal, which, can, which is on our website and includes a few thousand resources related to language access. Uh, we'll make sure as we're doing the update that we look for any new reports along the lines of what you're mentioning there. And you can see Jake has put our emails up, so um, feel, feel free to get in touch with us around additional questions. Um, Jake, another question is, does the report address how states and localities are paying for language access services, or is that, um, is that included among the features of the different laws? Do you want to respond to that? Sure. So there's a brief uh, section on that about um, certain budgetary provisions and requirements that we saw in some of the laws and policies. But overwhelmingly, I would say, no, that wasn't a common component. Um, you know, I think, however, we are hoping to do some research into this into the next year and um, uh, find out some more about exactly how the funding mechanisms work, how that funding flows down from the federal government as well as part of the services, and then how states and localities are dedicating that or designating that to uh, language services, training, um, paying language access coordinators, all those different sorts of, of uh, responsibilities. And if you if you do have a lot of experience with that, please please email me because I'd love to love to speak with you more. Great. And there's another question that I'll just um, quickly respond to, but not with a satisfactory answer. The question came in: What is the number of LEP complaints filed with the Office of Civil Rights during the last fiscal year, and what's the percentage of cause finding? So maybe we can do, we've teed up and uh, are really pleased that a number of folks who are running language access services have agreed to, uh, to write practitioner corner pieces for us that we'll be putting up on our, our publishing over the next several months. And we'll try and keep them flowing on different topics that are important for folks who, who are trying to develop and improve language access services. But this question is more about the, the process in the federal government uh, for exploring complaints about the folks who, folks who are receiving funds at the state or local level from the federal government and who are not complying with language access requirements at the federal level. So uh, there's, there's a whole interesting thing we could discuss but don't have time for today about how to uh, how to try and uh, have the federal government look more deeply at instances in which language access is not being provided uh, along the lines of what's anticipated under federal law. Uh, so maybe we can either uh, make that more of a more of a feature uh, somehow in in what we publish over the next few months. But in the meantime, 
I'd certainly refer folks to the federal LEP website, lep.gov. And, uh, and I think you should be able to find more information there. Um, and otherwise, um, I'll write to the particular person who asks us about where to find information about the complaints that OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, has, um, has pursued uh, related to language access recently. Um, so with that, uh, any other folks whose questions we didn't get to will um, certainly reply to you directly. But otherwise, since we're already a bit over time, I think we'll call it a wrap here. Um, you can see our contact information on the line. Uh, sorry, on the on the final slide there. And um, and we look, oh, wait, give me one more minute, please. Um, I, I also want to say we are really curious about the federal government's executive order uh, related to advancing equity for underserved communities. It was the first executive order that the president signed, uh, President Biden signed on inauguration day. And so for those of you who are thinking about these issues uh, with the, the kind of broader around thinking of the broader framework and governance of language access that flows from the federal government down to states and localities, uh, we think that executive order presents a real opportunity to try and strengthen the approaches that the federal government currently uses. And so for any of you who are interested in a, in a conversation around that, please reach out to either me or Jake because, uh, because we're underway with, uh, with some, uh, some thinking about that. But again, thanks to all of you for joining us and for all the work that you're doing around these issues. And, uh, and yes, please stay in touch. We are really interested in the work that you're engaged in and, and the issues that you're encountering. And, uh, and it would help us figure out uh, how we should think about our practitioner corners and, and other work uh, in the coming year, just so that we, we know that we're addressing topics that are of most interest to you. So thanks again, and, um, and we'll sign off now.